I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 61 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus takes mercy and forgiveness very seriously, but he approaches the less popular notion of judgment just as seriously. The world you know is a world of normalized mass shootings. There's another one yesterday, eight, eight dead, at least uh, when I checked the news before the gathering began. And whereas such an update may have shocked you, a, I don't know, a decade or so prior, it, hit, it hits most of us today as yet another incident amongst hundreds upon hundreds like it. In fact, according to data from nonprofit group Gun Violence Archive, there have been more mass shootings than days thus far in 2019. The GVA defines a mass shooting as an incident in which at least four people are shot, excluding the shooter. There were 382 such incidents in 2016, 346 in 2017, 340 so far in 2018 or pardon me, in 2018, and then so far in 2019, we have more mass shootings than days. American mass shootings are as ordinary as the simple passage of time. But in 2006, this was less so the case. That year, a 32-year-old truck driver entered an Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania and shot 10 young girls, killing five of them. Later, that same day, Members of the Amish community, some of them parents of murdered children, reached out to and visited the homes of the killer's mother, widow, and in-laws in order to extend forgiveness and to offer support in their time of grief. One Amish man was said to have held the killer's sobbing father in his arms reportedly for as long as an hour to comfort him. The Amish established a charitable fund for the family of the shooter, About 30 members of the Amish community attended the killer's funeral. Sociologist Donald Craybill wrote extensively about the incident and said this, I think the most powerful demonstration of the depth of Amish forgiveness was when members of the Amish community went to the killer's burial service at the cemetery. Several families, Amish families who had buried their own daughters just the day before, were in attendance and they hugged the widow and hugged other members of the killer's family. The world marveled at this. And some of them were just perplexed. Man, this is weird. Some of them were inspired by that story. Others decidedly less so. In fact, an article in the Boston Globe described these gestures under a headline, undeserved forgiveness. And really, who can argue with that? What made this incredible gesture of forgiveness so noteworthy was a conversation that was being had at an international level and it was just as divisive as it was inspiring. And when asked why, why do these things, the Amish community, of course, predictably uh, answered the teachings of Jesus, of Nazareth, is why we are doing these things, which is exactly the thing that you and I are here to study and to learn and to put into practice. One way we've set out to do that is by studying in detail, line by line, one biography of Jesus' life that we now call the Gospel of Matthew. Now, last week, Jesus addressed 
the inevitability of intercommunity turmoil, specifically that members of this new family that would later be called the church um, will inevitably sin against one another. So Jesus says, listen, here's what to do when, not if, but when that happens. And his approach is anything but passive or permissive. Jesus intends his disciples to actually confront one another when the poison of sin begins to infect a community. And he commands a very specific formula. If you remember, it goes like this. A brother or sister sins against you. The person who has been hurt goes to the person who has done the hurting one-on-one. And in loving humility, they, in the language of Jesus himself, point out their fault. Something like, listen, I love you. I want you to know this wasn't right. If that person who has done the sinning won't hear it, then the person who has been sinned against invites a second or even a third person into the conversation to help the two affected parties work it out. If the person who has sinned won't hear that, then it's time to involve the larger circle of community. Now, that wouldn't be 100 people or possibly much more in a sanctuary, but it would be the group that meets around the dinner table and shares life together in some meaningful sense. And if, if the person who has sinned still won't hear it, even from the community, then there have to be dire consequences. Not unlike an intervention with an addict, the community expels the persistently unrepentant person from their place at the dinner table until they come to their senses and repent. And this is done to protect the community from the lethal effects of sin. It's done to sober the sinning person and, in theory, save their life. It's done to protect the reputation of Jesus and the community. It's not an easy teaching. But it can be, again, like an intervention, a rare and worst-case scenario to save a family of faith from death. And Jesus, the master teacher, understands that in his context and in ours, straightforward though the teaching may be, it is not an easy pill to swallow, so he has much more to say. With that, let's read from Matthew 18, beginning with verse 18. Jesus says, straight out of that teaching, truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now here Jesus is reintroducing an idea that he's already mentioned once. Um, If you remember the story when Jesus confesses that Peter, or when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, and here Jesus applies the idea not to one person, not just to Peter, but to the hypothetical community or the church that will have to inevitably deal with internal sin and hold one another accountable for it. And the whole binding and loosing stuff sounds weird to us, but remember this teaching flows directly from the one before it. Most scholars agree that Jesus is saying that when the community confronts one of their own for unrepentant sin and the person who had sinned listens and repents, they are now loosed, or another way of saying that is pardoned, in the name of Jesus himself. On the other hand, if things escalate to a worst-case scenario, the unrepentant person is now out of the community. They are now bound in their guilt. And when it is done rightly, according to the teachings of Jesus, with humility and self-sacrificial love, all that, God will ratify that decision. It's not just done in a vacuum by the community. God will approve of it. Now, of course, this does not mean that this practice of confrontation and discipline has never been abused. Of course it has. What it means is that when the community of Jesus is working to genuinely and lovingly care for one another, even in the difficult things of accountability and confrontation, they don't do that alone. Jesus himself will oversee and support them. And he continues along those lines. Look down at verse 19. He says again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth 
agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, this is a uh, popular quotation of Jesus. It's actually even more empowering and subversive than it seems upon a cursory reading. First century Judaism required at, le at least 10 male adults for the practice of corporate worship. And this was no little-known bit of trivia. Jesus' audience would have all known this very well. And here, Jesus shatters both the sexism and the quanti quantitative limitations of that model with just a simple statement done in passing at the end of his teaching. The smallest group made up of men and women, young and old, become an effective family with the oversight and favor of no less than God himself, two or more gathered in Jesus' name. Now, uh, the offices of church, things like, uh, if you're familiar with terms like elder and deacon, come later in the New Testament. They're very real things, but they don't show up here. They aren't listed as contingencies. In other words, you don't need an official leader, just two or more people. But there are two specific conditions. That the community agrees is the first condition, meaning there's unity. And then secondly, that it is done in Jesus' name, which is a way of saying that they are obedient and submitted to the teachings of Jesus. And notice the language of the conditions. Jesus does not say, when you get together in the name of Yahweh, he doesn't say, when two or three gather in the name of the Torah or the scriptures. And that would have scandalized a first century Jewish audience. Jesus is announcing himself as the anchor of faithful devotion for the church. Some scholars argue one could possibly translate that line, when two or more gather in my name, as when two or more worship my name. And yes, Jesus' language about answered prayer here is hyperbolic, not literal in the specific sense. That much is obvious. Just because you agree on something and obey Jesus doesn't mean you get anything and everything you ask for, just to be clear. You can try it, it won't work. But it does mean that there is an incredible power in the convergence of those things, people getting together in unity upon the teachings of Jesus and in obedience to them. And contextually, we're connected, we're still connected to the teaching about church discipline, the whole binding and loosing thing. So Jesus is saying, when you must enter into the messy and unpleasant things, if you are unified and obedient, God will empower you to do them well. But again, all of this flows directly from a teaching that began with, if your brother or sister sins against you. So at this point in the story, one of Jesus' apprentices uh, and friends, really, kind of raises his hand in the middle of the teaching. Look down at verse 21. He's basically, excuse me, Rabbi, I have a question. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter, a, a character who features prominently throughout the story, has been learning. You have to give him that. It sounds kind of funny to us, or to at least to some of us. But really, he's actually suggesting something that in his context would have been radical. He gets, at least at this point in the story, he gets that Jesus requires radical forgiveness. Seven in Jewish understanding was kind of a number that symbolized completion or perfection. Someone hurts you over and over and over again. Seven times. That's a lot of time to be hurt in a row. And Peter expects that, man, this guy's radical. He'll want the offended person to forgive the offending person at least seven times. But where Peter errs is that he places any limit on forgiveness at all. Look at how Jesus answers, verse 22. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. 
Now, uh, 77 times, some of your Bibles translate it 70 times, seven times. is a bit like the way we use numbers like a million or a bajillion or whatever to indicate what seems like an infinite amount with a specific but not literal number. So this is less of a specific and literal figure and more of a hyperbolic way of saying there is no limit to how many times a disciple of Jesus is commanded to forgive those who hurt them. Why? Verse 23, therefore, meaning here's why, the kingdom of heaven is like, meaning when God's will is done, when you live according to the teachings of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Verse 24, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, I won't uh, bore you with a detailed breakdown of first century currency. You can talk to me afterward about that if you'd like. But the, the actual figure cited here is a ri ridiculous one. One scholar I read wrote, the Greek language cannot express by two words a definite single sum larger than this. It's like saying that this character owed a zillion dollars or something like that. So naturally, verse 25, since he was not able to pay, it's impossible, you can't pay back a zillion dollars, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, seems obvious, but hear this. The servant's master in the parable is God, the Father. The servant is you or me or us, which is funny because Peter's question presupposed that he was the one who had been sinned against. And Jesus is saying, wait, first, let's talk about you as the one who sins against someone else. And in this parable, all of us have amassed an unpayable debt to God. You hear that? An unpayable, like a zillion dollars, as it were. But also in this parable, God doesn't just forgive the debt or lessen the debt or just adjust the debt or offer more time to pay it. Most reasonable people would call any of those things gracious. If we owe someone big and they say, you know what? I know times are hard. Pay me at your own pace. Or if they said, um, here, just pay me half of that. That's all you have to do. Just about any reasonable person would be overwhelmed with gratitude for that kind of charitable kindness. But God does something else. What does God do to the servant's debt? Well, you guys know I can barely hear anything. He cancels it. It no longer exists. And note, that's not what the servant asked for. The servant wanted patience, and he wanted another chance to pay the debt back. But the servant's master gave him immeasurably more kindness than he asked for. So if you follow Jesus, if you, like Peter, live under this very controversial truth claim, Jesus is who he claimed to be, your debt to God, the unpayable debt, has not been relaxed. It's not been graciously adjusted to accommodate you. It has been canceled. There is no debt. Now, you would think that we and the, the servant in Jesus' story would be radically affected by such a thing. But keep reading, verse 28. When that servant went out, freshly forgiven and all that, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, this is an absurdly inconsequential amount compared to the zillion dollars that this character owed moments prior. What does he do? He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. 
he demanded. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, does this sound familiar, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Almost the exact same words the character said himself just a few lines ago. And this pleading servant is in actually a more realistic position to repay the debt, uh, much more so than the previous servant. So will his peer have the same mercy on him? Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. That word can be translated, they were utterly dismayed or horrified or that they had great sorrow over it. And they went and told their master everything that had happened, which is interesting. They're following Jesus' paradigm of accountability. Don't be passive. Don't be permissive. Point it out. Don't ignore it. 32, verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So the story ends on a heavy note, to say the least, but we'll come back to that. The point is that disciples of Jesus are expected to forgive willingly, readily, and infinitely because that is how God forgives us. Now notice the amount one servant owed the other was a real amount. He actually did owe him something. It was in context around uh, four months worth of wages. So it's a, rel a relatively noteworthy debt, to be sure. But it pales in comparison to what the servant, the first servant, owed the master. And so the unforgiving servant is judged, and harshly, to say the least. Matthew even uses the word torture, which sounds kind of icky. And remember, Jesus is an artist, so he loves to use all kinds of hyperbolic, even violent word pictures and imagery to communicate very serious ideas. And this is a parable. It's actually a little satire, so we don't build like literal doctrine out of it because it isn't literal, but that doesn't mean that it isn't addressing something true. And even though he ends with a dire-sounding parable, a little satire, the point is this. Jesus does not want to end his sermon with the idea of confrontation, which is where he began. He wants to end with the idea of forgiveness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote of this passage, forgiveness can never be authoritatively preached without a concrete preaching of repentance and judgment. The preaching of repentance is the protection of the gospel, a repentance which calls sin, sin, and which declares the sinner guilty. Then, agreeing with Bonhoeffer in his commentary on this passage, one scholar writes this, in the Gospel of Matthew, you get baptism with both the Holy Spirit and with fire the proclamation of both blessings and woes, the promise of peace coming to or peace leaving homes, the gift of the keys of loosing and of binding, all are variations on the twin themes of Jesus' grace and justice. Balanced churches will seek to minister both in Jesus' name. Now, lest anyone here misunderstand either me or Jesus, I want to tell you guys a, a small story. For much of my life, I uh, was deeply troubled by certain passages of the Bible in which God is depicted as, shall we say, intense. Um, and if I may go so far as to say unpleasant. 
I was equally uncomfortable with, quite frankly, many of the more edgy teachings of Jesus, like this one where he mentions the word torture. And the reason was this, I think. Um, I am pessimistic by nature, and so given a paradigm of God who's often angry and merciful, or a portrait of Jesus that's both kindly but also fiery, um, my whole glasses-half-empty mind <laughs> warned me, man, this seems too good to be true. The mean passages probably nullify the nice passages. That's how a pessimist thinks. In the early stages of this wrestling, I took up an experiment of my own design. I've encouraged other people to do it. You can do it if you like. I read all four Gospels with a pen and a pencil in hand. It's not, not an in-depth word study or anything like that, just a surface-level reading across a few days. Um, and when arriving at a troubling passage, something that made me go, oh, that sounds weird, um, something that seemed to demonstrate Jesus' fiery, intense, or even mean side, or God's mean side, I, I would underline that in pencil and think about it. But when I arrived at something that Jesus said or did that was overtly beautiful or gracious or kind, I underlined that in pen. Now, I had only made it like partway into Matthew when I begun, had begun to see what I confirmed at the experiment's conclusion, which is that the pen, the gracious, kindly Jesus, outnumbered the pencil by a long shot. Even at a surface level reading, Jesus is depicted as overwhelmingly gracious in contrast to the few but undeniable passages that portray his anger against sin, the reality of judgment, which is something that's unpleasant to consider, the violent imagery of some of the parables. But there were still misgivings. I had done that, and I'm concluding, well, you know, it seems like I focus in on a, few, a handful of uh, passages and I let them obliterate the, the overwhelming amount of passages that seem to resolve them. I still had misgivings. Now, at the risk of coming off as pretentious, many of these misgivings eroded upon further investigation of the Bible. That's not a cop-out. Cop out. It's honestly true. You know, I've spent years in seminary. I have to or get to study the Bible for hours every week as my job. So I'm a, a living case study in the effectiveness of the often ignored solution hiding in plain sight, which is biblical literacy is the solution to most of our problems with the Bible. Um, understanding what the Bible is, how it works, how to read it, resolves much of our tension with the Bible. Most of it, I would argue, but not all of it. Because biblical literacy, context, historicity, believe me, all of that won't simply lift the edgy passages out of the Bible. They're obviously still there. Now, sure, you can just lift the sections out of the Bible that you don't like. It's a popular thing to do, if not an intellectually bankrupt thing to do. But in doing so, you render your discipleship an incomprehensible mishmash of your personal preferences. You disobey the teachings of Jesus himself. You remove yourself from the historic tradition of more than 2,000 years of people following Jesus well. So don't do that, just to be clear. Even though it's very popular, it's lazy, it's half-baked, I would argue it's self-centered nonsense. Instead, I think we have to simply confront the reality that Jesus did teach grace and judgment. Though he was both relentlessly merciful, he was also very serious about unrepentant sin that he taught his disciples to confront and to forgive. Bruner summarizes Matthew 18 by saying this, 
The surprise of the sermon, he describes the teaching in Matthew as a small sermon, is the seriousness with which war is waged against sin in the congregation. There is no attitude of, we're all sinners anyway, so we shouldn't judge. Instead, everything possible is done, first of all, to reduce occasions to sin, scandals, trip-ups, in the lives of disciples themselves. And then everything is possible, everything possible is done to seek out straying fellow Christians. Jesus wants us to be compelled to forgive by the outrageous amount of forgiveness that the Father has lavished upon us. But, and please listen, Jesus does warn us that if we do not forgive, we will be judged. And notice the character in the story had already been forgiven and is then yet thrown into jail when he refuses to forgive. The warning is for those who will not forgive a brother or sister, um, quote, unquote, with their heart. Another way of saying that would be something like our modern expressions, with all of your heart or from the bottom of your heart, meaning the forgiveness must be sincere and complete, a mental and emotional and spiritual cancellation of, of the debt. That's not the same as our kind of old forgive and forget platitudes. Forgiveness is hard, messy work that, according to Jesus, requires confrontation and conversation and confession and processing and repentance and community. Our friend Dr. Gary Bashir defines forgiveness this way. He says, it's the personal act of releasing someone who has sinned against me from my right to pay them back for their offense. Instead of reciprocating the pain I have been given, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. And absorb doesn't mean that you act like it never happened. Remember Jesus' model. There's a confrontation that happens. There's conversation, processing, repentance. But it does mean that you release the debt and it is canceled. Remember, this teaching arrives in the flow of the ones that preceded it. Forgiveness is after the hard work of addressing sin has been done. Calling it out, dealing with it has been done. Jesus has already introduced at this point in Matthew's biography the radical expectation of discipleship in his Sermon on the Mount when he said this, be perfect, <laughs> therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, most of us read that line and immediately dismiss it away and we think, well, well we know that's not what he meant because no one's perfect. Can't mean what it seems to mean. Um, and in a sense, that's true. It doesn't mean what you might think it means. But Jesus isn't calling his disciples to become perpetually without error of any kind. If that's what you mean by perfect, then no. But that much is abundantly clear from reading the rest of the New Testament. The disciples continue to be a mixed bag. Spoiler alert if you read the New Testament. In context, this shocking line flows directly from Jesus' teachings on nonviolence, which still are radically ahead of their time. Enemy love. How can we possibly be expected to love those who hate us, to do no violence against anyone, even if violent people pursue us? And Jesus says, because that's what God does for you. Be like him. You were God's enemy, and God loved you. Jesus himself died for his enemies rather than defending himself violently against them. Be like him. The command for anyone who, apprentice, who would apprentice Jesus is to treat one another the way that God treats us. Uh, this is what we in the business call a high standard. I think you would agree. But remember, all of this, the confrontation, the forgiveness, the judgment, it all unfolds in the context of community. Two or more united around the confession that Jesus truly is the king of the universe and God is with him. Meaning, 
you do not figure this out all by yourself. You have help. You sin against one another, yes, but you also forgive one another. There's built-in forgiveness. And in all of it, you don't go alone. The more, more to the point, you can't do it alone. It's a beautiful idea, but not a convenient one, because the very community that carries one, another bur- one another's burdens also sins against one another. The very community that has to learn to walk in forgiveness will also be judged if they refuse to do so. Now, if you've been at this community thing for any length of time, whether that's like Van City community or just a close circle of friends learning to follow Jesus together, you know this well enough. Community is beautiful and ugly, and the scale can tip from one side or to the other in any given season of life. But there's no other way to apprentice Jesus. No wonder he has all kinds of instructions and warnings and encouragements. And the rest of the New Testament is all about like, man, you guys need to get your act together. You're doing this and this, and here's how you do this and this. So is there grace for us? Abounding love and patience and extravagant forgiveness? Yes, of course, immeasurably so at that. But there are also consequences for hurting one another, consequences that we should take very seriously for refusing to repent or refusing to forgive, dire consequences for all of those things. And according to Jesus, those consequences are both in the here and now, meaning your behavior actually has a bearing on the way that life unfolds around you, the life in your community, your own life, the way you think and feel and talk to other people. There's consequences right now and there's consequences in the age to come. And the reason that matters isn't to terrify us into obedience, but to sober us with the great seriousness of caring for one another well. When there's a handful of us in one place, each of us in agreement that Jesus is the king, unified around that idea, Jesus is with us, empowering us, guiding and ratifying our realization of his teachings in the world. Such a thing is so beautiful and so precious so utterly unique in all the world that sin cannot be allowed to poison it. Hypocrisy cannot be allowed to topple it. In the mind of Jesus, it must be confronted and weeded out and destroyed with loving humility and kindness and graciousness and forgiveness, yes, but it must be dealt with. So, confront one another and pursue one another, chase after one another, hold one another accountable, and forgive one another with infinite willingness, emulating the infinite forgiveness of God himself. And Jesus will be with us while we do it. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do the things that we can't do of our own volition. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.